G'day, welcome to Partakers. This is a series of studies called Luke Looks Back, based in the Gospel of Luke, and is presented to us by Roger Kirby. Over to you, Roger. Study 23, Luke chapter 18, verse 31, to chapter 19, verse 27. The title, Seeing and Trusting. There are four sections in this study, all of which have something to do with seeing and not seeing, understanding and not understanding, or just plain hidden. The first section, chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, serves as a summary of what is to follow. We read that now. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. The disciples had a reasonable excuse for not understanding. What Jesus was saying was so strange and unexpected, they could be forgiven for not understanding. But we, in all probability, have some knowledge of how things turned out, so we do not have that excuse. Verse 34, which says the disciples did not understand any of this, provides a challenge to us, the readers or hearers. Will we be blind or deaf? Will we see or hear and understand? Blindness and sight are metaphors for no faith and faith. Have you moved from blindness to sight? Remind yourself what the effect of your blindness was and how you first knew that you were seeing. Or if you are in a group, Share together your journeys from blindness to sight, darkness to light. We now read in this chapter 18, verses 35 to 43. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. When he heard the crowd go by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Question 1. What is the significance of the rising sequence of names given to Jesus by the blind man? He is named as Bartimaeus, meaning literally, son of filth, in Mark's Gospel. 
Those names are Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, son of David, Lord. Jesus of Nazareth probably meant to Bartimaeus, the prophet with power to heal, and who would have compassion on him. Jesus, son of David, meant Jesus was the Messiah, Lord, that Jesus was worth following. The question and answer in verse 41, where Jesus asks Bartimaeus what he wants, may appear strange, but begging was a profession in those days, as it still is in some countries, dependent on a visible handicap and providing a good income. If the man was cured of his blindness, he would have to find a job with no skills or experience to call on. Question 2. The emphasis is not on Bartimaeus' restored sight, but his faith. What exactly did his faith consist of? What is this miracle saying to us? The important phrase is, he followed Jesus. He must have known something about Jesus, or he would not have made so much noise trying to attract his attention. We, too, are not expected to start from detailed knowledge about what following Jesus means. We, too, are expected to get up, metaphorically speaking, and follow him. Now we're going to read chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today... Salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Zacchaeus was not only short of stature, he was a collaborator with the hated Romans. He would not dare to push his way to the front of the crowd for fear of a knife in his back, so he ran ahead. Not what an important man should do. But the crowd saw him go and mocked him, so that Jesus learned his name. Jesus was intending to go straight through Jericho, so that he would not have to spend time, possibly days, being entertained with full ceremony. But he is prepared to go to Zacchaeus' house. Question 3. 
Note the significance of seeing in this account. Who did the seeing? Everybody. Zacchaeus had to take action to see Jesus. Jesus sees him. The crowd sees what is going on and starts to mutter. There is a strange servant figure in Isaiah chapter 53. He takes hostility meant for others on himself. Statements there like, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. These reflect the costly love that Jesus gives to Zacchaeus. Question 4. We read earlier in this chapter that the rich man, like the camel, had to go through the eye of the needle. What happened to prove that Zacchaeus didn't dodge round? The promises of repaying Zacchaeus made are far-reaching. If you do the maths on what he said, you will see that if he had cheated just on one-eighth of his debtors, he would have ended up with nothing. Perhaps he is saying that he has been a good man, and that he has not been cheating in the past. Now we read this chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, 
take his minor away from him and give it to the one who has ten minors. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Luke does not use this parable of the miners to teach successful stewardship, as Matthew uses it in Matthew chapter 25. He uses it to explain the apparent non-appearance of the kingdom. The people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The parable uses a well-known and well-understood situation. Seventy-three years earlier, Herod the Great, second son of the just-assassinated king, made a successful journey to Rome to see the emperor to petition Caesar to appoint him the next king of Judea. Later, about 37 years before Luke wrote, Herod's son Archelaus had made a similar but unsuccessful journey, seeking the same thing. A miner was about a hundred days' wages for a working man, so quite a considerable sum of money. Question 5. What would be the likely outcome for a servant of the would-be king if, first of all, the petitioner who would be king was successful, or if he was unsuccessful. By their actions, the servants would demonstrate their allegiance or otherwise to the man seeking to be king. Their future livelihoods, or possibly even their lives, would be dependent on having chosen the right option. The last phrase of verse 15 should perhaps read, How much trading have you done? Effectively asking, how conspicuous have you been while I was away, when it was known that you supported me? If I win, you win. If I lose, you lose. Question 6. How was this relevant to the developing situation as Jesus travelled to Jerusalem? How is it relevant to us? If Jesus was indeed the Messiah he claimed to be, and they showed their loyalty by open declaration of their support of him, they would gain. If he wasn't, they would be in a very dangerous situation. At least that was the way it looked. Things do not quite work out in that straightforward way. He was indeed the Messiah, but they were still in a dangerous situation, humanly speaking. But in the vast story of human history they became very important. The comment of the third servant must have been meant as a compliment. He must have been suggesting that his master was something like a warlord in a country with much internal fighting going on. Question 7. How can this and the master's reply judge you by your own words, you wicked servant, you knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, 
so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest. How can these be related to Jesus or to God? Psalm 18 verses 25-26 relates to this sort of situation. It says of God, To the faithful you show yourself faithful, to the blameless you show yourself blameless, to the pure you show yourself pure, but to the devious you show yourself shrewd. It suggests that at least in part our understanding of God will depend on our general attitudes. Question 8. The final comment in verse 27, For those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me, is realistic in the Judean kingship or warlord scenario. How can it possibly be related to Jesus or God? This is another unfinished story. We are told what the enemies deserved, not what actually happened to them. Compare what we deserve and what we actually get from the Lord. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So says verse 28. Finally bringing to an end the long account of the journey of of Jesus to Jerusalem and introducing the last phase of Luke's account of Jesus' life death and victory thanks Roger this series is on every Sunday but as usual on partakers www.partakers.co.uk there is something new available every day to inspire your Christian life